Hey everyone, today's guest is the talented, beautiful, and insightful actress Olivia Munn. You know her from The Newsroom, X-Men, Apocalypse, The Predator, and countless other movies and shows. I really admire Olivia for so many reasons, and after this episode, I think you will too. I'm also excited to welcome world-renowned clinical sexologist, educator, and sex coach, Dr. Patty Britton. Dr. Patty joins me later in the episode for an uninhibited discussion with one of her listeners about BDSM. Now, here's Olivia. Ladies and gentlemen, you are listening to Unqualified with your host, Anna Ferris. How are you? How has the last, like, I don't know, six months been? Can you give me the spectrum of emotion? I would say just ups and downs like everyone else. In the beginning, it was actually like kind of a nice break for me because I just feel like sometimes I get anxiety of just trying to keep up with the flow of everything, you know, and it almost felt like the pencils down, you know, at the end of a test or quiz, like everybody pencils down, nobody gets to write anymore. Nobody, like we all had to kind of just (sighs) pencils down. Everybody has to wait. So you got this kind of moment of like, okay, we all get to stop, take some time by ourselves, you know, take care of our, our minds and our, our hearts and our health. I had a little anxiety. Then I got used to it. Then I was feeling really good. And now I'm in the place where I'm a little bit more confused because you see people going out and being social, but not wearing masks and all this stuff. And it's and traveling. And it's it's very confusing to me because I don't really know what we're supposed to be doing right now. I so feel that. Do you? Because this is like a struggle for me lately. Oh, God. Yeah, completely. Okay. Can I ask you a series of questions? Okay, great. If you could live anywhere in the world for a year, where would it be? I'd live in Kyoto, Tokyo, or Turks and Caicos. I know I wasn't supposed to pick three, but they're all so different. I grew up in Tokyo. I miss Tokyo. That feels like home to me. Uh, So I would love to be there. I never really got to spend a ton of time in Kyoto, so I would love to be in Kyoto. But truthfully, right now, because of the state of the world, I just want to be in Turks and Caicos, like on a beach where that warm ocean water is like right there, feet away from your home. Just like, that's really all I think about all the time is just, if I could spend every vacation right on a beach with warm ocean water, I'd be happy for the rest of my life. But so it was your dad that was stationed in Tokyo. Will you give us a little background? So it was my first stepfather. My mother is now remarried to my second stepfather. My first stepfather, my mom married him when I was two, and he was in the military. And so I was a military kid from two to 16. And then we were in Oklahoma, Utah, and then Japan. And we just ended up staying in Japan for most of my upbringing until I was 16. And then came back to Oklahoma, where I went to high school and then to the University of Oklahoma. What was that like, transferring from Tokyo to a high school in Oklahoma? That was probably one of the hardest years of my upbringing, I think, just because I had already like gone from school to school growing up, you know, always being the new kid in military family. And now at 16 years old, I've got to go back to Oklahoma where people have known each other from like kindergarten on. So they've already established their cliques and everybody has their own social standing, you know, and then I come in and 
I didn't look like anyone else. I didn't dress like anyone else. It was really difficult. I literally cried every single day for a month, my first period of class, and then into the hallways. And then I would kind of stop crying like by second period. And then somewhere around lunch was always the hardest. And then it was just really hard because I, I would just cry a lot and nobody would even like look at me. There's so many kids in that school. I think there was like 700 or a thousand people in my class alone, I think. So it was just a lot of people with their own life and problems and concerns. And no one was even thinking about the new girl in school. So that was really, really tough. But I do look back and think that it really helped me for Hollywood to kind of go into places where nobody cares who you are and feel that kind of constant rejection. It kind of like toughened me up, I think. I imagine just imagining a high school in Oklahoma specifically, I guess. Mm -hmm. Did you end up finding like a clique or a group? So when I was in Japan, I had made the cheerleading team a few years in a row and we were like actually the Far East champions. So that's like all of the Far East military schools. We competed in that. And so that was my group. And my, my older sister, I have two older sisters, one biological, one was a stepsister. And they were in the same school with me too and on the cheerleading team. So I really had that kind of family unit. Um, I'm one of five kids. So I always had my siblings with me in school everywhere. And then when I was 16, my mother and my first stepfather divorced. And then my sister at this point was now in college. And now I'm alone going into this huge, big high school by myself. At the time, I was dressed like in big skater pants. I wore like men's big T-shirts and big skater pants, like these massive jeans that like you could fit like two legs into one leg. And I didn't wear makeup or anything like that. And so Oklahoma, it's a big pageant kind of state. So these girls knew how to do makeup and curl their hair and all this stuff. And I had no idea what I was doing. And I remember going through the hallways and, you know, once I stopped crying (laughs) and then observing kind of like what everybody was kind of dressing like. And so I remember going to the drugstore and getting some CoverGirl eyeshadow and not even knowing how to apply it, having to turn it over on the back to look at the illustration of like where you place the eyeshadow and trying to figure that whole thing out. And then I remember at the time, it was a very preppy look that was in style. And so all the popular girls all wore these sweater vests with like little polos underneath them. And then these like little cargo shorts. Just screams of sex. <laughs> I know. It was a very like preppy Oklahoma look. And and so we didn't have the kind of money that we could just, I can go like, mom, I want to go like change out my whole new wardrobe when I just spent a lot of money on skater pants over the last year. So I went into my Vietnamese grandmother's closet and she had these old sweater vests that she would wear. And I would just like take those and try to put together my version of what these girls were wearing. I did not pass. I did not look like I fit in. And then I abandoned that pretty quick. And then, you know, at 16 years old, junior in high school, I just wanted to have somebody to have lunch with. Because at the time I was able to trade out one of my classes so that I could have library aid as my lunch hour. And instead of eating lunch in a cafeteria with everyone where I didn't have a place to sit, I would actually just sit with like the older librarians who were like in their 70s. And there's this one guy who's a library aide with me. He was a raver and he asked me to come to a rave with him one night. That was was like, (laughs) I'll just try. I'll try anything. (laughs) Wait, wait, wait. How old is this library aide that you're raving with? He was like maybe a year older than me. Oh, okay. I think. Yeah. So he was like, do you have any friends? And I said, no, I just moved here and I don't really know anybody. And so he's like, come to this rave with me. And I had no idea what a rave was. 
And so I remember he tells me where to meet him with his friends. And I went and I remember just everyone's like got their glow sticks and partying and like just parting their heads off. And I'm just standing in the corner, kind of like watching it all going like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing and sitting there with glow sticks, trying to like kind of dance a little bit, but being like, this is not me. I don't know what this is. But that guy was really great because he just befriended me when nobody else was at all. And he really kind of got me through this hard hump uh, at that school. And then years later, I was doing the premiere of Ride Along 2 in Miami. And he comes up to me and he's like, hey, you may not remember me. And I like looked at him. I remembered his cheeks right away. And I was like, oh, my God. I was like, you basically saved my life through like high school. So that was really fun to just be able to meet him again so many years later. And then he, you know. He was a cop in Miami and um, has a kid and stuff like that. It's really sweet. I wonder, so, though, because I went to my 20th high school reunion, and I think the only reason to go to your high school reunion is to get reflections, like, in a self-absorbed way, like, of how people mm-hmm. re- remember you, if it confirms mm-hmm. what you remember or mm-hmm. if it dispels what you remember. I moved around so much. I didn't have, like, the group of friends that I'm like, oh, let's all go back and reminisce, and I can't remember a I can remember a few teachers' names, maybe, I don't know, the social part of school, the struggles, some of the highlights were great, but in general, like, the people that I want to stay connected to, I have stayed connected to. I never really understood people going back for, like, a high school reunion. Was it horrible? No, I almost wish it was, because then it would have been definitive, at least, Mm. but I felt the same way about prom. Like, well, I guess this is something I should do. (laughs) Yeah, well, I... I wasn't invited to my prom by anyone at the school. So there was a boy at this other school. I can't really remember his name, but I invited him just because I thought I should go. So I brought him, got the pictures. I love it. You're the outsider bringing the outsider. (laughs) But then he knew all like the cool, like jocks and, and, and the popular crowd and they wanted to leave prom and go to some after party. And I just really didn't want to do that at all. So I just said like, Hey, why don't you just kind of go off? And he's like, are you sure? I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to go home, which is kind of my MO a lot. I'm the girl that I'll go to a party, but then I don't ever mind being like the first to leave and go home and kind of hang out with my dogs. And I'd much rather do like a dinner party or a game night then go out to like a thing. Prom was for me was like, I had to do this. I'm going to go check out the list. I've done it. And that's it. I Yeah. High school only haunts me in a couple of ways, mostly having to do with like rejection Mm. and love and heartbreak. But at that age, like when I felt like I was in love, it really had nothing to do with him. (laughs) It was just Mm. like he was just a handsome kid and I couldn't believe he liked me. And then, of course, when there's sex involved, too, for me at that age, it was like, now we are bonded for life, you know? How old were you when you lost your virginity? I was 17, and it was incredible, Olivia, as you can imagine. (laughs) (laughs) But I think that love at that age, too, is it's so difficult to be examining of somebody else because you're so self-examining and it's very hard to to actually assess like what do i like about this person what do i like about that friend that friend is mean why am i chasing that person who's like kind of an ass but i think that there's just too many things going on in your developing brain to have any kind of perspective in any way but anyway i'll tell you more about losing my virginity 
<laughs> yeah. Well, you know, <clears throat> high school is an interesting thing, but memory is a very interesting thing to me because like my memory of high school, I can remember the good times and the bad times. I can remember all that stuff. But the feeling that I have when I think about how I felt during high school was it's hard to describe because um, I had more problems like with social situations and friend groups more than I did like falling in love with guys. I wasn't really that into dating and stuff when I was in high school. I was more interested in hanging out with girlfriends. Would you have described yourself as like an angry teenager? No, not at all. I was really angry. Why were you angry? Oh, I was mad at everything. I just felt like my world was small. Even though I had no Mm. valid reason, I have an amazing family. I grew up in a nice, warm, safe home. I did not want for much except for like beauty and popularity. But because those things seemed very unobtainable and like it felt like a secret Mm -hmm. code that I couldn't figure out. So then I felt like, well, fuck this. I'm going to, I don't know. I immersed myself in like drama club and theater Mm -hmm. stuff. And that was that, which were not popular activities. (laughs) (laughs) My sister was always the knockout. She's older than me. She had these amazing big lips and this, this butt and boobs and as far back as I can remember, she just was always just so striking to people. And so when we're in school together, people would just look at her and we kind of looked similar. So then they'd kind of see me, but I wouldn't get any of that attention, which I liked. I saw the way that people were fawning over her and it probably as a little sister, it made me really defensive. And I didn't want anyone to look at me like that. And I think that she probably, you know, didn't feel as strongly as I did about it. Maybe she even liked it. I don't know. We've never really talked about it, but I just know from kind of like being behind her sometimes actually watching it like in in school you're going to your class and there's my big sister up ahead and I could just see all the guys like turning and looking at her and she was always so self-assured and so self-confident and she was always popular because she was just like such a badass she just was this girl who just played by her own rules she like dyed her hair blonde when nobody else was doing that she did like really cool things that always made people gravitate towards her And because of that, I think that I got that immediate kind of spillover popularity because there's like, oh, you're Sarah Munn's sister. Yeah. So I didn't really have to. I mean, it wasn't that I was immediate popularity, but it was an immediate recognition that this is my sister. And it's not that it gave me more friends at all. It gave me an anchor. It made me feel like I was safe in some ways. But I think it's because I had my sister there with me and my other siblings as well, but specifically my, my older sister, Sarah, because she was so confident. But I also got to see how she was, you know, fond over for her sexuality that made me not want that attention at all. Olivia, you're so stunning. As you talk about your older sister, like part of me is like, what the fuck is she talking about? Like, it's like an amazing well, ass and beautiful lips and what the fuck? <laughs> well, that's very sweet. It's sweet, especially coming from another woman. But growing up, I was more, I wouldn't say tomboyish. I was just, she looked like an adult at like 12, you know, that's the difference. But her self-confidence was always so strong. And she always amazed me how she just always had such a strong sense of self. I remember there was this uh, group of girls when I was in eighth grade, I believe they just, they didn't like me and they were really mean to me and they would always threaten to like beat me up. And so I would start to take these really circuitous routes to get to my class. Um, and I would never 
uh, see them if I could help it. I would just keep avoiding them. And one day I was walking into the gym locker rooms and I come around a corner and I see one of the girls. And I, so I kind of fall back. I know that my sister's in there too, because I could hear her voice. And I heard one of the girls say to my sister, Hey, we don't like your sister. And she said, okay. And they said, yeah, we don't like her and we don't want her at our school. And she was like, okay. And then she turned around and walked away. And I remember chasing after her going like, I can't believe you didn't stand up for me. I can't believe you didn't say more. And she was like, hold on. Are those the girls that are threatening you all the time? And I said, yeah. She goes, are they the reason that you are late to all your classes? I'm like, yeah. She's like, do these girls know who you are? I said, no. She's like, do they know you? Are they your friends? She's like, no. She's like, it doesn't matter who they are or what they think of you. She's like, don't you ever let me see somebody make you feel that small ever again. She's like, cause I will kick your ass myself if that ever happens again. And I was like much more afraid of my sister than any other girl. And it was something that really, that's amazing. Kind of, yeah. It defined things for me a lot then, because when my sister was just saying, okay, okay. To these girls, what I wanted was for her to say, shut the hell up. And what she taught me in that moment was people as ignorant as that, they don't deserve an explanation just like let them say whatever they want to say and walk away because they don't deserve any of your time. And it was tough, but you know, we, I pushed through it. I mean, I ended up having to fight those girls. <laughs> oh God. Uh, Such trauma. Yeah. I remember I got in trouble, went to the principal's office for getting the fight and they called my mom to the office and the assistant principal was telling her what happened. My mom said, do those girls punch my daughter? She said, yeah. She goes, then good. I'm glad those girls are bleeding. And she, she's like, let's go and walked out. Damn. And I know it's like you're not supposed to condone physical violence or you're supposed to be able to use your words, but sometimes words just don't work. And so, you know, I'm so grateful to my mom for making me do martial arts since I was a kid because I had much more of an awareness of how to protect myself in that moment. Oh, completely. Yeah. What do you do with your kid? Are there ever bullies at school with him? Mm, not that I know of, unless, okay. it's, unless it's him. Uh, I remember when we hung out and he wanted to play veterinarian he's just like the sweetest little little guy he's been calling me dude lately uh, <laughs> God. okay what is a trait you dislike in others entitlement without any work behind it when people just think that they deserve it simply because they did a little bit or because they exist that drives me crazy and probably tied for first is hypocrisy like I just have such a problem with people who say one thing and do another or you know the people who stand on a platform preaching one thing but then behind the scenes as you and I know in Hollywood the real deal that probably affects me on a more daily basis than the entitlement thing the entitlement thing is just you, we get that all over the world but being in Hollywood and knowing the truth about people and then the image that they portray and then the image that the public accepts of them it can be really frustrating. Yes. Really frustrating because <laughs> you think, because everybody says that they stand for something, they want to stand for something more and you want like the good guys to win. But how many of the good guys are good guys and girls? It's not like a, I'm just using the term good guys. How many of the bad guys keep falling up, you know? And I think that's what bothers me probably on a, on a daily basis. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. 
That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What about you? What's the trait you hate the most um, of Oh, gosh. You know, no one ever turns it around for me. Well, <laughs> I think... Calling you dude. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I think maybe an underestimation. And you're right about like hypocrisy. We are in an industry where it feels like I'm constantly searching around in terms of like with my representation or anybody that I really work with of looking for honesty, looking for mm. solidity in, you know, when I look for advice. I don't like it when people underestimate or people treating me with a degree of preciousness. Mm. But that's kind of Hollywood-specific. And I think all of these things I'm sure I'm guilty of at times. I can't think of any examples, of course. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I probably know what traits I dislike in myself maybe a little bit more. But mm. what are yours? Unless you oh. want me to go first. You can go but, first. I don't know. Lately, I've been thinking a lot about how negligent I am mm. in relationships, how I inadvertently hurt people's feelings by just not getting back to them, not sending like mm. a gift or like not being available because I want to take a bath or, you know, just shit like that. Mm. Okay. So wait, what is a trait that you dislike in yourself? I procrastinate so much. I read this article years ago. I think it was the New York Times talking about how procrastination is connected to OCD. I've had OCD in the past, but it makes sense because usually you think OCD makes you really high functioning and, and you complete all your projects and everything you do. But procrastination is so closely tied to OCD. And they say, because say you have to, you're going to clean your room and you're like, okay, on Saturday, I'm going to get up and I'm gonna clean my room. And then Saturday comes around and then it's like 10 AM. You're like, you know what? I think I'm going to have a nice big breakfast and kind of hang out. And then noon, I'm going to start cleaning. And then noon comes around and you go, you know what? I'm going to go take like a walk now. I can, you know, what? I'm going to come back at four and then I'm gonna have the whole night to do it. Then you come back at four and you're like, you know what? I'm going to eat dinner. Then you know what? I'm gonna spend the whole night just doing it. And then before you know it, it's 10 p.m. and you're like, you've given yourself two hours to do the whole thing. And then clearly you can't get it done in two hours. So the perfection can't be achieved because OCD is like that perfection is never really something that you can achieve. So then when you procrastinate, you're basically giving yourself no opportunity to make it perfect. So that way, you know, if you have the whole day, there is no excuse but to make it perfect. But if you just keep procrastinating and give yourself just a small little window to get it done, perfection is impossible to achieve. So it kind of goes hand in hand. If that makes sense? Yes. And I find it profoundly depressing because I can completely <laughs> relate to the scenario you just described. Mm -hmm. Like right now I've got these scripts to go through and it just will, it will just be really difficult for me to kind of get my mind around just sitting and doing it and looking at this page and making notes. And it's really difficult. And I probably give myself a lot more anxiety. I'm working on that a lot more just because I had to realize how much more stress I give myself on the other side. Like I don't have like a big team of people around me to get stuff done. It's really just me. And I have an assistant who helps me, but that's basically it. So I don't have like producers and social media managers and did it and all these things, you know, around me to like make sure I'm at the right place at the right time and doing all this stuff. It's really all on me. So, you know, I've been 
trying to figure it out for myself. During quarantine, I started organizing my house in a way that makes it so easy to keep it maintained in an organized way. So then when things are organized and they look nice, then it makes me just more motivated. So I just allowed myself the time to, to do that. So yeah, procrastination is a really bad one, but I can get riled up. <laughs> I have to really stop myself. When I hear that someone has been wronged, I immediately want to just say something or tweet something or, yeah. Before we were going to talk today, I was thinking about how ferociously loyal you are. Oh, You stand up for what you believe in. You stand up for other people. And that's something that I really admire. And it must go, of course, hand in hand with a deep sense of empathy, I'm sure. That's a beautiful quality. Well, that means so much to hear that from you. Thank you for saying that. Because it's something that I do pride myself on is being someone that people know that you can trust me and that if I'm in your life that you have my loyalty. It's really important to me. The thing is, when I say I can get riled up, like being loyal, wanting to defend people, those are good qualities. But the problem is that if you can get riled up, then like for me, the past few years, like the Me Too movement and connecting with a lot of silence breakers and wanting them to feel like they've been seen and heard because a lot of the silence breakers are not the A-list names that we see on red carpets or in the Time's Up. And the silence breakers are the, the people who have created this Me Too movement and made all of this possible. And I end up, you know, communicating with so many of them and I get very riled up and then kind of dizzy from feeling like I don't know what to do about the injustice that's happening to them. And I can sometimes not think clearly because it will spin me into a place where I will get depressed or just kind of shut down in a way. So, yeah. Does that make sense? It totally makes sense. Is that a negative? No. I have so many things about myself. I wish I... I um, was more motivated to work out more. I wish I got up and loved putting makeup on. And uh, social media has made me think about myself in a different I'm like, why am I not getting up every day and like full glam and then videotape? I mean, people are doing this and they're having so much fun doing it, it looks like. And I just, I wish I just got up and was like full glam and I knew how to do my hair. Cause it seems like people who do that live, you know, pretty happy lives. I mean, I know that it's social media, but still, I wish that I had that motivation. Olivia, I don't know if I believe all of it, though. Maybe it's because I can't relate to it because I tend to not really post super sunny pictures of, like, myself picking apples, <laughs> like, or whatever. <laughs> but I feel too messy mm. to portray a very polished version of my own life. Mm-hmm. And I find it really intimidating. And that's why I also really avoid social media because – I don't know. It's not a perfect fit for me. I don't know. Like early on when I joined Instagram, which was way later than anybody else. Me too. I found myself getting addicted to the likes. And then I hated that part of me. Like, why am I like anything having that much control over me that I don't really, really love? And just, you know, in me, the idea of I'm already looking for approval all the time in my life. Mm than to have like sort of the instant, like all the data there. A number, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> no judgment to people who are awesome at it because <laughs> I admire them. It just made me feel like, you know how when you were like 17 or 18 or whatever and you're looking at a ton of women's magazines all the time and there's that feeling after you put them down or whatever that – there's a slight depression mm-hmm. and it's like, why do I feel kind of bad? I feel like I need mm. those things and like, oh, I need to be doing this. And, or mm. th- at least that's how I felt 
And it's a similar feeling of like, I can't pinpoint it on social media. I can't pinpoint it on women's magazines. It just personally makes me down. And <laughs> like, I'm so annoyed with my own mirror face. Wait, mirror face? Yes. Like, I can't look in the mirror without making a weird pose. Mm, like a selfie face. Yeah. Yeah. Like pursing my lips out or like yeah. looking a little more awake than I feel or whatever mm-hmm. that is, which is clearly not, um, <laughs> you know, how I look all the time. <laughs> There's this um this great story about, I may be getting the building wrong, but I believe it's the Gridiron Building in New York. I believe. But I'm going to get some of the nuances wrong. So people who purchased the Gridiron Building for $100 million And when they purchased it, they realized that a lot of people were complaining about how slow the elevators were. So they had all these different elevator companies come out to give them a bid on how much it would cost to update the elevator system. And all the bids were like, it's going to be $50 million to do a whole new elevator system. And they're like, that's crazy because we just spent X amount and we can't do that. And then they had this other elevator guy come in and then he said, okay, well, it's going to cost you like $1,300. And they're like, $1,300? It Everybody else is saying like 50 million. It's like, yeah. So what we're going to do is we're not going to change your elevator system. Instead, we're going to put mirrors on every floor in between the elevator banks. People end up spending so much time looking at themselves. They don't even realize how much time they're waiting for the elevators to come up and down. And I believe to this day, it hasn't been changed. Yeah. So it's not just you. Don't feel bad. I love that. Well, you know, I think this is an unpopular opinion amongst people on social media, but when Instagram talked about hiding likes and trying that in different countries and also possibly hiding the number of followers you have, I believe, I think that's really healthy. You know, we can't take away social media and there's a lot of great things that come from social media. But to look at some of the elements about it that can be detrimental to, I think, just your psyche and stuff, I think it was really great of them to talk about that and to try to put it into practice and to see if it might work. I know the big argument from people, especially influencers and people who make money off of it, was that they're like, their numbers are, you know, that's what helps them get sponsors and stuff. But you can still show sponsors. You can, you still have access to your numbers. You can still show that to somebody. It just doesn't become this marker that the rest of the world can see, which is nice because to me, it's like, if you have a blog then it can just be your content, whatever you're doing. It doesn't have this like marker number at the top of like how many other people are watching or looking at it. It just, you know, you can sell ads on it because that's how people, you know, create blogs and make money off of that. But there's not this like number at the top going, this is how many clicks I got. And I feel like that's something that would be really beneficial for people if there just wasn't the number to compare yourself to other people. I never really got into the game of how many likes or how many people followed because by the time I got onto it, there are people who just had like, an astronomical number. So you're like, oh, like I'm not going to play that game. So I guess I'll just do it for the fun of it, but never for this other game that other people are doing it for. And I think that probably has helped my mental health more than anything. (laughs) And part of it is it makes me feel comfortably old, my Mm. obstinance towards it. Like I'm the grumpy person who's like, I don't even know what (laughs) kids are doing. Hey, Olivia, what is your favorite rainy day movie? Mm. I don't know if I would have a favorite one because I think it's whatever is on TV and it's usually Forrest Gump or Castaway. Those are great. Yeah, but like whenever it's rainy, just I put on TV. I don't put on a movie specifically because I don't like the beginning of having to start. and Like it feels like you're like, okay, we're sitting in and we're watching this movie. I like to find something that's already playing on TV, even if there's commercials or whatever, and just kind of feel like I've 
just kind of joined that movie. So it's probably like a Forrest Gump. Do you have a favorite movie? Favorite movie? I actually had to write because I get asked this and like pressed up. I never really 100% have the answer because I feel like it always switches around. Yeah, it, no, it's a tough question because it's like, well, there are movies that I admire that I never want to see again. There's also movies where you're like, you say them and you're like, okay, like if I say Harold and Maude, which is one of my favorites, that's a great one, especially in Hollywood. It's a cool answer. Um, but then, and then there's other ones that like, that are still cool, like Lars and the Real Girl. It's more current or, you know, not, I guess not that current for other people, but it's not as old as Harold and Maude. And I love that movie and they're very different. And then I love like Office Space and I love Back to the Future. Those are good comforting movies. Yeah, they are. But it's really hard to know like what a favorite, favorite movie. What's your favorite movie? Uh, I know. It's too, too, this is why I get to ask you is because I don't have <laughs> to like, answer them. you're like, stop turning it on me. <laughs> no, but I'm a sucker for romantic com- Like I, even though I view myself as a somewhat cynical person, I love like Bridget Jones's Diary and About mm-hmm. a Boy and like. About a Boy is great. Yeah. And I love Forrest Gump too. You know, Tom Hanks is, when you're feeling ill, he's, Forrest Gump he's, is a the, man to, he's the man to turn to. Yeah. I would love it if you said Scary Movie 4. <laughs> Can I ask it again? Um, Hey, Olivia, what is your Mm -hmm. favorite movie? Uh, Gosh, my favorite movie, there's a lot, but I would probably say Scary Movie 4 is probably my number one favorite movie. What about Scary Movie 2? Did you like that one as well? Scary Movie 2 is my third favorite movie. Scary Movie 1 is my second favorite. Oh, good, good. What's your favorite scene in Scary Movie 4? Uh, my favorite scene in Scary Movie 4 is that scene where you get scared. <laughs> <laughs> a lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science, with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What's your favorite ice cream flavor? Rocky Road, Thrifty's brand, which is from Rite Aid. What was your first boss like? Oh, she was awesome. My first real job was at the Burger King on Yokota Air Base um, in Japan. I was wearing my skater pants during that time. And she said, you look like you like to wear your clothes a little bit baggy or do you want me to give you like some baggier pants, you know, for the uniform? I just thought that was like the nicest thing that she wasn't trying to force me into this like buttoned up kind of Burger King uniform. (laughs) What talent or ability would you most like to have? I wish I could sing. Okay. What qualities do you look for in a friend? Loyalty. Someone who always sees the bright side on things. Someone who can just hang out and watch TV. Someone who doesn't need to be constantly photographing and videoing everything to put on social media. You know those friends, right? You're like, oh my God, all of a sudden 
I'm doing something just for, for us and all of a sudden you're videoing me and it's on your stories. What qualities do you look for in a romantic partner? Somebody that's just loyal and fun to be around and smart and has a, their own job that they are really passionate about, you know, not like that they're just doing something to get by, but like something that they have a really big passion for, even if they're making money or not. They like to do game nights and hang out and they love animals and they're really loyal. Do you have a favorite book or author? Well, my favorite book is a book called Replay, which is by this author named Ken Grimwood. On what occasion do you lie? When I have to save someone's feelings. But Um, very rarely, even then, I will most likely tell the truth because I feel like the truth is so much better. I think it hurts someone more to to not tell them the truth. What about when you told me that Scary Movie 4 was your favorite movie? (laughs) Okay, all right. Uh, Well, this is a tougher one. Uh, To whom would you most like to apologize? And why? Oh, that's a great. When I was in college, my grandmother, she collapsed in the middle of the night at 4 a.m. And I heard my grandfather, you know, calling out to her. And I had to go and call 911. And on the call with 911, they told me that I may need to administer CPR. And in that moment, I froze and I was too afraid to. And then I said, oh, no, maybe she's just like breathing funny or snoring or maybe she fell asleep. But in that moment, I was wasn't deliberately lying. I just, I was so afraid that I was just hoping that it was that and not something more. I would go back and she ended up passing away. And those were her final moments. That was probably the the very small window that I had to, to bring her back, but I didn't. And I froze instead. And I would go back and probably apologize to not only her, but to my grandfather as well for for not doing more. Oh. But it's one of those things where you you look back and you Yeah, just, that you think, of course, that like... I wish I had just done things differently. You know, in moments of uh, trauma, I feel that I step up when I need to, you know. Um, but ever since then, whenever something happens, like that was like the worst case scenario to me is to lose somebody that I love so much. And so I was at the airport this last year and this woman started having a seizure right in front of me. And I immediately knew to clear the area. We're getting all, I mean, I could just kind of go into a mode of just trying to help. And so it's kind of like learn on the other side, how to be always aware and present in case something happens, because that moment was such a defining moment for me, realizing that when I needed to step up the most, I, I was too afraid to, and I just never wanted to be like that again. That's kind of beautiful. Mm. Thanks. Well, I don't know if a lot of people get, get to that place in life. Okay, who would you call if you got food poisoning and couldn't really move? Uh, the question behind the question is, who can you count on that comforts you? Well, one of my best friends is a nurse. Hmm. I've known her since I was 13. And so whenever anything is going on in my life, she's someone I talk to. But I'm very lucky. I have a lot of close girlfriends that I've been friends with for years that I can kind of go to them for anything. But her name's Corrine, and Corrine is probably the one I go to for any kind of medical thing and emotional thing. Who would you invite to your dream dinner party? Uh, I would invite my grandma and my grandpa, and I'd invite my, well, truthfully, it'd probably be just my family. I know that sounds crazy because people think of like all the most amazing people in the world that you can be with and talk to, but like, I think especially during quarantine, it's made me, I mean, my family's always been close, but Really, if, if I can just have a really great dinner with my family, there's nobody else I'd really need to be there. Okay, deal breakers. Olivia Munn, are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. You just had a great first date. 
in a nice restaurant. As he's driving you home, he mentions that he tipped the valet $50. (laughs) That's a deal breaker because why are you telling me? Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, why are you telling me? Just do it. (laughs) My thought would be like, so then if you didn't have somebody to tell that to, then you probably wouldn't have tipped him $50. I think so too. Unless there was something really charming like, oh God, I thought I gave him a $5 bill and it turns out I gave him a 50 and oh, <laughs> that's kind of <laughs> yeah, cute. Yeah, that, that, that is cute. I'd like the honesty with that. <laughs> okay, let's see. While watching a documentary on flat earthers, he turns to you and casually mentions that it shouldn't really matter if the earth is round or flat. <laughs> oh my God. I think that would be so entertaining. It would be an ultimate deal breaker, but I would want to talk to that person for the rest of the night. Oh yeah, for sure. (laughs) You know what? Here's how I imagined this person. I imagine him being like, yeah, babe, well, you know what? What's wrong with living on the edge? You know? (laughs) (laughs) I'll tell you, I dated a conspiracy theorist once for a few years who um, at the beginning once for a few years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh-huh. Yep. Uh-huh. Keep keep and, going. <laughs> and I I remember it was early on. It was like two months in and he said like the craziest thing to me. It's so crazy that I can't, it, it'd be triggering if I said it out loud. And I was like, I can't date you. I can't. And then I remember he broke down crying and was like, give me another chance. And I remember just thinking, well, maybe he's just been kind of sheltered for a lot of his life, even though he seems like, you know, he's successful and he's got some stuff going. But then I realized like, you know, too far into it. And I was like, oh, those are some big red flags. You know, I'm all for a conspiracy theory and trying to understand things that seem like they are more duplicitous in ways. But sometimes there's like the earth is flat, that whole thing, or what this guy said. And he would then continue to say other stuff. You're just like, oh man, I can't. It's like, a conspiracy theorist, I just can't do. That's just not my jam. I'm not saying that there's not a place for them in the world. They're just not next to me. Okay. You're in a long distance relationship with someone whose house you've never been to. When you finally visit him for the first time, you discover he sleeps in a bunk bed. <laughs> These are great. Can I have some follow-up questions for you? Totally. Yep. Okay. Is there any roommates? No. And does he only sleep on one of the bunk beds? Yes, the top. And does he have a regular job? Yeah. And yeah, he works for the um, National Park Service. He's a ranger. Oh my gosh, a ranger. That sounds fun. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. And he has a bunk bed. And is it the top bunk or the bottom bunk? The top. The top. That, that seems the top. more fun. Yeah, it is fun, but it is like 18 inches away from the ceiling. Mm. <laughs> it's, you know, the roof is a little low and the bunk bed is high. And does he have any problems with not sleeping on? Like, is it a deal breaker for him that we always sleep on the top bunk? He definitely prefers it. He has whatever the opposite of vertigo is. He Mm -hmm. likes, he enjoys heights. In (laughs) fact, he doesn't have a ladder to get up there. He has a rope. (laughs) This guy sounds like an American ninja warrior in my head. He's a park ranger who has a rope that he climbs up to his top bunk of his bed. I would say that is not a deal breaker for me, but I like weird things like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't have to sleep in it. He can sleep in it. I can sleep on the bottom bunk and you can have sex in other places besides like the bed that you sleep in. So, and if that's what makes him feel good and that's how he wants to sleep, you know. <laughs> when I first moved to LA, I lived in a, a studio 
apartment. It was in a, a building of townhouses and then mine was on the end. And I had to climb up into my bunk at night and underneath the bunk was my couch and then faced out to the TV. But like I slept in a bed that I basically had, to, if I could sit, I could sit up in it, but I had a hunch over. So I did that. And I was an adult doing that. It was just a big space saver. I like a bunk bed. Okay. <laughs> okay. After watching a National Geographic documentary on the origins of man, your partner announces that he wants to eat more meat. He fills your fridge with beef, chicken, and pork and starts grilling every day. After cooking you dinner one night, he tells you that the chicken was really squirrel and he <gasps> wants you to compete on the survival show alone with him. Let's just break it down because the show alone, which I have seen and I do like, you have to be alone. So I can't compete with him. No, no, no. They're, the next season, they're doing a couple's version. Oh, great. Uh -huh. Thanks, Anna. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. You're welcome. Um, well, <laughs> I'd say not cool for tricking me about squirrel meat. And I am really allergic to mosquito bites, so I can't go on any kind of outdoor competitive show because they don't allow you to basically bring like your vitamin B1, which is great for keeping mosquitoes away or bug spray. So I That can't say, be one of your 10 items? I think it's be pretty wasteful to bring like, like out of the 10 items you can have to survive, you're like, and I brought my vitamin B1. <laughs> Olivia, this time alone, the couples are competing for- $37 million. $37 million? $37 million. You start with that. Then I'm okay. I'm eating squirrel fine. <laughs> and he just wants to be alone with you in the woods. And he's like, baby, as long as I get to pick my five items, you pick your five, bring all the vitamins you want, honey. Yeah. I love you. You can yes. just stay in bed. Stay in my bunk bed. I'll build it for you. Mm -hmm. I'll go out and hunt. Yeah, I would totally do that. Yeah, I'd compete. Why not? I can hunker down pretty well, too. I can just like kind of sit around and do nothing. I know you're a ferocious competitor. I wouldn't want to play game night with you. <gasps> do you like game night? No. Oh, no. you don't? No, that's, I like a friendly game night. But one of my worst nights in Hollywood was at an actress's house for game night. And I was so in over my head. I just cried and there are those groups I know like in the Hollywood group where they all play their game. They're running charades and they're all the crazy stuff or they do the mafia one. I think that might be the one you're talking about. Maybe it's just it's really intense and I don't know how people do it because sometimes there's like just really famous people that's super distracting. Yeah, yeah. I fundamentally feel like I don't belong anywhere. Certainly yeah. not Hollywood, but then a Hollywood game night. I, I mean, I really would rather be like on day 96 alone in the <laughs> fucking Arctic, then I think relive that night. Okay. Is there a moment in your career or personal life that you're most proud of? I mean, yeah, there's a lot, but first one comes to my mind just because you said professional. So that like hit me more that I think just my time on the newsroom, there's like been nothing that has compared to that, which is unfortunate because that ended in 2014. <laughs> So six years ago, but I just, I loved being able to work with Aaron Sorkin and that cast and um, with people at HBO and that character and um, nothing really has compared. It was such a great show and you were so great on it. Yeah. How many seasons was it? It was three seasons. It was like two and a half kind of like, yeah, Aaron Sorkin had decided, believe at the end of the second season that he didn't want to do anymore. He was kind of burnt out. Not that he didn't want to per se, but it was just really taxing on him because he wrote every single episode himself. So 
and then we decided to come back for just six episodes for the third season to kind of round out the stories. But that was it. In one word, how would you like to be remembered? I don't. One word is so hard. <laughs> I know. When I think about this question, I think like I wish that other people could answer it for me. Mm-hmm. And I would hope they would say like generous or kind or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I do I have a fantasy of somebody saying remarkable. Well, mm-hmm. that Ferris huh. was just remarkable, wasn't she? <laughs> <laughs> no one uses that word enough. People should use that word more often. Um, when I think about you, I really do think about loyalty. Hmm. Especially in this town and in this time right now, I think it's a tough quality to come by in somebody. And I think that's really amazing. Well, I appreciate that. It's a character trait that I value a lot in other people. Completely. You know, when there was rumors that Chris and I were dating and I had known you and since you were married. So to me, that is like a loyalty that you can't break, especially like woman to woman. And when those rumors were out there, I just wanted to reach out to you personally because I didn't know if you care. Like I said in the text, I don't know if you cared or didn't care, but I just thought that if there was a small chance that it hurt your feelings in any way, I wanted you to know that it wasn't true. I was like bummed that you weren't going to be my sister. <laughs> I know. <laughs> sister wife? <laughs> I know. No, no. I thought that was so sweet and classy of you. But I'm not possessive, I think, in that particular way. I'm possessive mm-hmm. and loyal in different ways. But to me, the idea of controlling somebody's love life or feeling an ownership of something Mm. like I don't have claim over anymore Mm -hmm. feels incorrect. Mm. And I've also have a kind of a a little bit of a weird ability, I think, which I don't know if it's a great thing, but when something is over for me, it's Mm. usually been over for quite a long time. Mm -hmm. When a decision has been made, I'm usually quite comfortable with, I've like emotionally reconciled myself with that. Mm -hmm idea. Well, that's great. I think that's why it's in the small chance that it is something that you had seen it was bothering you. Just in the fact that like, I think it was close after, I can't really remember now, but I think that the timing of the rumors coming out that Chris and I were dating was not that far from your separation being announced. So, and we had separated, as you probably know, like a bit before that, before before the, yeah. So So, I just didn't want it to feel like it was more just to clear the air just in case. But, you know, it's funny because when those rumors first started happening, my publicist would call me and I'd say like, uh, you know, just ignore it, you ignore it. And then finally he called me one day and he said, okay, so we're getting a calls from like people magazine and us weekly and like the big ones. And they all have confirmed sources saying that you you and Chris Pratt were at Craig's last night. And I was like, but I wasn't at Craig's. And I, I messaged um, Chris on Twitter, I think, or Instagram. I can't remember. And I was like, so who's this Olivia Munn lookalike you've been hanging out with? And he responds back. He's like, my publicist said, were you at Craig's with Olivia Munn last night? And I was like, who's Craig? <laughs> That's what Chris said. <laughs> so would you, if you hypothetically, if your best friend, whoever your best girlfriend is, you've been best friends for 10 years or something, if she started dating your ex-husband, would that bother you? I suppose if I found out through tabloids, a dear friend of mine did, there was some hookups involved with another dude that I was with that I didn't find out about until later. And I was 
angry for a few years. Wait, there's a friend who had hooked up with an ex of yours? Yeah. Well, my ex and I were together. There was a friend of yours who your boyfriend at the time cheated on you with. Yeah. Yeah. And are you still friends with this person? Yes. <gasps> Wait, Anna. Oh, well, no, I mean, no. It's a long, it was a long journey for sure. I which mean, podcast do I need to listen? Which episode? <laughs> I'm going to go back and listen. <laughs> I haven't actually really, I didn't find out until we had broken up and she and I were so close. And then it became, I think, kind of an excuse for me to be really furious with both of them when truly I was so excited to get out of that relationship. Like it was a great way for me, a very valid way for me to hang my hat on like feeling furious with Mm -hmm. two people in my life. But I missed her. I would think about like if I ever ran into her, like I was going to take her down or whatever. And then when I eventually did, which was on an airplane, which was very odd, we just like sobbed in each other's arms. Mm. She was like, I miss you. I'm so sorry. And I was like, I miss you too, which was a reaction that I had never fantasized mm. about having. And it felt so good. Now we're we're really close and I love her. And part of it was helpful that I didn't have feelings for my ex, you know, that my heartbreak in the affair that they had was much more missing her than him. Mm. Well, you know, it's an interesting thing too when and you're saying like you got really ferocious and in a lot of that anger. But sometimes I found in my, my history, when I look back, I've gotten mad about something. But truthfully, honest to God, in my head, I was like, I'm not that mad, but I'm kind of acting out. I'm supposed to be mad because you did this to me or you cheated on me or you did this. So I'm acting out. But really, I don't want this anyways. I think I'm I'm supposed to be outraged and upset and right. and, and everyone's supposed to be feeling like horrible for what they did. But really, I'm like, oh, yeah, it's not that I don't really care. And it's funny how I have actually kind of like seen myself from above, kind of like looking down, being like, why are you doing because you don't really care. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but I've got to keep doing the motions of caring. It was such a perfect way for me to own that story. Mm -hmm. Like for me to be able to say to my friends and family, yeah, uh, you know, we broke up and can you believe this? Mm. Well, and, you know, like it was a way for me to keep all the chips, you know? Mm-hmm. And I'm sure that my ex had a lot of complaints about me. <laughs> well, it also shows that you have a lot of compassion, you know, that you are not marking your friend by the acts that she did during this period of your life that you see her for so much more than that. And I think that says a lot about you because – it's really difficult, I think, to sometimes see situations that could be hurtful to you as anything more than just that specific moment in time. And the fact that you can now be such close friends and put that together says a lot. And also, I think, I don't know if you're still friends with the guy. Are you still friends with the guy at all? Mm-mm. No. And so I think a lot of times, and I, it's a really just big disappointment, but you know, in situations like this that happen, the girls get the boot and and the guys get a second chance. And I just think it's a really unfair result a lot of times. So it's really great that this friend of yours got a second chance, you know, because a lot of times we don't want to give that to the women. Oh, I missed her so much. And it felt terrible to live with anger that was out of love and missing Mm -hmm. her, you know. 
And we were kids. Oh, my God. We were just so stupid. We were, like, having stupid parties in a dingy apartment for, like, three years <laughs> or whatever. Like, <laughs> It's funny the things that we don't care about anymore. Yeah, yeah. I think, like, oh, I really didn't care. I really don't, you know, I have this expression that I tell myself a lot of times, like, is like, just get there now. If I'm ever sad about something, I think back to all the other times. I'm like, well, you know, you'll eventually get over it. So just like, think about it, spend, you know, a little bit of time, not as much as you'd want or would naturally go into, but just spend a little bit and then just get there now. Cause you don't want to waste all this extra time eventually getting there. Cause we can just drag out a lot of emotions and sadness and frustration and hold on to that anger and, at the end of the day, you go, well, that's just a lot of wasted time. And I'm going to eventually get over it. So let me just buckle down, think about it, be sad for, talk to therapists, talk to my friends, really like get into it and then make a decision to just see life differently, change things in my brain and just keep moving because we can lose a lot of time just not letting things go that we eventually will let go. Totally. Yeah. I, I so subscribe to that idea. I like to look at it as almost like a selfishness. Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't want, I don't want to be feeling those things inside. I don't want to be like something gnawing away at me. But I don't know. I guess that's the, that's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> well, we just keep trying, you know. Do you have a favorite joke? Do you have a joke up your sleeve? There's only one that I remember. What did the egg say to the boiling water? It's going to take me a minute to get hard. I just came out of this chick. That's kind of my only. It's it's you know what it's podcast friendly, but not anywhere else friendly. I feel maybe it's not even podcast friendly. <laughs> Olivia, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Bye, Olivia. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye. Bye. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win, and support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey. Hey everyone, I would like to introduce you to world-renowned clinical sexologist, educator, and sex coach, Dr. Patty Britton. If you want more of Dr. Patty, you can find her at drpattybritton.com. Links can be found in our show notes. Hi, Dr. Patty Britton. Thank you so much for joining us today. I am so excited about being here. I'm thrilled to have you. We're going to call Nicole. Okay. Hello. Hi, Nicole. Hi. Nicole, you're here with me, Anna, and Dr. Patty Britton. Hi, Nicole. Hello. <laughs> Will you tell us what's happening? Yeah. Okay. So 
for quite a while now. I've known that I was into BDSM, but I've never talked about it to anyone, including my partner. It's really hard for me to get aroused any other way. And I've always thought that there was something wrong with me because of it. Uh, In addition, I'm really self-conscious, so that doesn't help. (laughs) So I've been with my partner for about three years now, starting this month. And only about a month ago, I finally told him. He's always known that I had a low sex drive, but ever since I told him, we've actually had like really good sex, probably the best ever. And he tells me he enjoys it, but I still can't help feeling like I should be able to be aroused during normal sex and to be able to have romantic sex. Even though he says he's into it, I still just can't help feeling like defective and embarrassed and it's, I don't know. Well, Nicole, I want Dr. Patty to explain to us a few different things, but I want you to know, Nicole, I really love submission. <laughs> Just to ease your, <laughs> ease your nerves a little bit, it can be really fucking hot. Dr. Patty, will you give us a brief definition of BDSM? Sure. And Nicole, I want you to know that you're not alone. That's the first thing I want to say to you is that there are millions of people on planet earth who are kinky and that's what, that's what you are. And it's for many people, a natural part of who you are as a sexual person. So I'll deconstruct for a second what BDSM means, because it actually means three different things. And we don't really think of it that way, but it means bondage and discipline, dominance and submission and sadomasochism. And I don't really know what it is that you enjoy, but maybe we can dive into that a little bit and find out what is it about BDSM that gets you going? I guess it's the bondage part and the the being dominated. I don't think I'm really into being the dominant. Is it the physical part of it? Like the fact that you're restrained? Yeah. Well, what happens? Tell me a little bit more. What do you like? (laughs) Um, Well, usually it's, when both of us are either tipsy or, you know, a little drunk, that's usually when I start to get a little frisky. <laughs> okay. And uh, we do it in the bedroom. The first time we did it, yeah, he used a belt because he didn't really know what to do. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, and then after a couple more times of like trying different things, he we have a lot of bungee cords because we go floating on the river. and. Um, so he used that and like kind of tied my hands above my head and it tied me to the bed frame and gagged me and like uh, anyway and yeah. uh, we also use clitoral sucker during sex as well. Okay. So he usually just kind of takes the reins and I just kind of lay back and, <laughs> and just let it happen. Well, it sounds so beautiful because you know this fact that you can let go in this way is part of what's making it work for you. Yeah. And I really trust him. Yeah, I can Mm -hmm. tell. And, you know, I have a pretty strong feeling about what you're doing. And it sounds as though as long as you've talked about it with him and you've negotiated what's okay and what's not okay, and you have a safe word, do you know about the safe word? Yeah, we haven't really talked about it because I don't think I'd be able to use one if I was can't. No, uh, but so. you can signal. You could have like, if I tap my hand three times, that means stop. Or two times means yellow, red, yellow, green light type thing, right? 
Yeah, at one point I shook my head because the bungee cords were cutting off my circulation and he got the picture. Oh, this is really good that you did that. (laughs) I'm really happy to hear that because you're alive to tell us. But, you know, here's the thing. I have a bias as a sexologist and my bias is that if you're going to be playing with BDSM, with bondage, especially if you're going to be restrained from being able to talk like, you know, with a gag or a ball gag or something that's covering your ability to talk. And as long as you can breathe, you know, that's the key. You want to stay alive and well. It's really important to kind of know what you're doing. And part of the whole protocol in BDSM, as you may know, is pretty well structured. So it starts with communication. You kind of have a contract verbally. You negotiate what's okay, what's not okay. You talk about how do you signal when it's yellow light, like, uh, I'm not sure, you know, like my neck is getting pretty tight and you don't want to restrict any of my my breathing ability or anything on the neck that could really harm you because, you know, that's a dangerous zone. Mm-hmm. So. I think it's really important if the two of you continue to play this way, which it sounds like is working, that you really frame it with consent, negotiation, and stop words or a safe word. Yeah. And also, are you a part of FetLife? Do you belong to that? No, we really just started trying it out. I've never delved into it except like occasionally porn, but this is the first time I'm actually kind of getting into it. Good. So, you know, you you may want to kind of go into FetLife.com and play around to learn more. The more you know, the more fun you're going to have and the more you're going to let go of this feeling that you have of embarrassment or what you said. It really touched me when you said it, that you feel defective. You're not defective. It's kind of like it's your orientation, like without this part of you expressing herself you don't get off. You don't turn on even, right? Yeah. And I also just, I want to be able to have sex without that, you know, sometimes and just like be with each other. Yeah. And it's sometimes it's just hard for me to get aroused, but I guess sometimes I just need to, you know, do it for him, not just for me as well. So I don't. (laughs) Well, yes. You know, sometimes we do a service act <laughs> for our partner, mm-hmm. right? But, you know, to give to someone that you care about is a, an act of love or service, and there's nothing wrong with that. But, you know, I have this feeling, Nicole, that part of what you could do is the mind is a very powerful tool, and the, the brain actually doesn't know the difference between what we imagine and what we do. Do you know that? Mm-hmm. It's kind of cool science. So if you were to imagine being tied up, being restrained with a belt, being tied to the bed, having something in your mouth, maybe an eye guard on. I love that you use the, the I call them clit suckers. <laughs> the, this new line of women's sex toys and pleasure products is like really amazing. I kind of look into this. (laughs) I'll tell you more later. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, we as females really enjoy having clitoral stimulation. We know that. And these things are really powerful little vacuum devices. And they're not really vacuum, but they feel like it. And they like, (laughs) in our clit, which is very arousing. 
And so maybe you could tone it down when you don't feel like going all the way to a kind of bondage experience and maybe just have him hold your hands above your head. Mm. You know what I'm saying? Like, Mm -hmm. like do some of the things without the tools or the accessories like a belt or a rope, because you have to be careful if you're going to play with those. Yeah. Do you mean both physically, Dr. Patty, and emotionally? Yes. It's a combination of the sensation. When you restrain sensation, when you're in bondage, something really amazing happens. Mm -hmm. It's weird. It's like the opposite of what you'd expect. So your body is being tightened and you can't move parts of your body and it frees you. (sighs) You feel free inside. So the more you restrain, if you're oriented this way, the freer you feel. And when you feel free, you can even have what in BDSM is referred to sometimes as flying, where you're almost like flying out of your body. You feel so good, which is also what happens for some people at orgasm, right? Yeah. It's it's almost as if it like cuts off my other senses and that's what I can focus on. Yeah. Anna, do you have questions? <laughs> well, I do for you, Dr. Patty, because I love to be At times, I love to role play. I don't know if that's because I'm an actor, but I love to do like professor, you know, and student who needs an A or, um, you know, I love to play ski lodge with a group of friends, even though it's just Michael and myself, of course, and the power went out, (laughs) whatever. Like I like to mentally escape sometimes like that, but I do like sometimes to be dominant. And sometimes I like to be submissive. I do sometimes love like a light spanking or like, you know, a little tie up. And I do feel maybe as women, we feel an obligation to analyze these things more in terms of is this stemming from a societal guilt? And maybe it shouldn't be examined too much. What do you, I know we only have a few minutes, Dr. Patty, and I, you're smiling <laughs> at me like, okay, this is a lot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Can you like pack in, you know, yeah, all of your education down. and studying <laughs> for us? In two minutes or yes. less. No, but <laughs> I'll give it a stab. So here's the thing. We get off when we're denied something. So there's something about, like, if you take my sight away, my hearing's going to be stronger. It's going to be more acute. And we enjoy change and variety. That's what stimulates the brain and the dopamine in our brain. That's what turns us on. And that's what keeps us excited. You're talking about role play, which is actually part of BDSM, interestingly enough because we're playing with what we call erotic power. It's an erotic power exchange. So you can imagine, you know, the school teacher, the school marm with the ruler and the naughty little boy who's in the (laughs) classroom acting out, right? (laughs) I'm hearing giggles in the background. Yeah. And, okay, and there's energy in that. And even if we just change the way we talk and I say to you, you are being bad. Sit down, little girl. Okay. You feel something. (laughs) And that's part of running energy. That's erotic energy. And the power exchange is what makes it work. So I think lots of us come from an experience of enjoying playing. Sex should be about play. It's not work. I don't know about whether women analyze more. I've certainly known a lot of men who analyze 
as much as women do. So I don't know if it's gender-based, but I think that we process a lot more and we get much more concerned about how people think about us than boys and girls. I guess my question to you also, Dr. Patty, is should some of these things be analyzed? Like, do I need to think about, oh, like, you know, the guilt that I had, like losing my virginity when my parents didn't want me to, you know, like, I don't want to go to those places. Is there validity in that idea of just simply not having to examine what delights us? Absolutely. And here's the thing, unless it's distressing you and you're obsessing about it, just accept it. It's who you are. It's how you are. It's what I want to say to you, Nicole, is that this is how you are. It's kind of how you're wired. That's what an orientation means. Mm -hmm. So when you're wired in this way, don't judge it. Don't feel embarrassed. Don't analyze it. Don't pathologize it. Don't make it a disease or a disorder, which is what psychology tends to do about a lot of things that may be just plain natural, just being human. And as a sex doc, we really normalize, that's the word that I like to use, a lot of things that might be looked at by people who are either my clients or other professionals who are like, oh, you mean this person is into, ooh, isn't there something wrong with that? What happened in their childhood as a trauma? You know what? Sometimes we need to stop a cigar just a cigar, right? Yes, I love that philosophy. So just be and accept it and enjoy. Life is short. We're learning that, aren't we? Mm -hmm. That yes. we got to live in this moment and enjoy and find the pleasure in it. Pleasure is a really important part of all of this. Yeah. Nicole, does your partner really enjoy it as well? Yeah, he said at first he was kind of nervous because he'd never done it before, which, you know, neither had I. But he said, I think during it, I think he enjoys himself more than he lets on. <laughs> but yeah, I think he does. Beautiful. And I, I'm excited to maybe try some role play. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the more you have fun with it, the, the more elaborate you become with it, like costuming and you plan for it and you, you know, you set your bedroom in a different way or when the world opens up and you can, there are play spaces in the world where you can go and explore theme rooms, for example, where maybe there's a school room or maybe there's a medical examination room or a courtroom, you know, all of this stuff stimulates us so that we can be creative and enjoy each other in different ways. But the thing that I really want to say again to you, sweetie, is that it's very important that you learn how to do these things. Because when you are playing with a belt or ropes or restricting your breathing with a gag over your mouth. If somehow something were to slip and your nose is covered, then your breath is at risk, right? Mm -hmm. So you want to make sure you understand what the etiquette is for BDSM. And I guess that's why I'm suggesting check out FetLife because one of the cool things that happens all around the world is that there are groups that get together in local areas called munches. And I'm sure they're all online now, which a munch is like a lunch <laughs> meeting <laughs> where you meet other kinksters and you don't do anything. You just get to know each other and you talk about things. And there are a lot of classes that are available for you. So, so just be safe, but also be, be playful about it. Nicole, I love being a high-end call girl that doesn't speak English. <laughs> <laughs> 
I love it. Especially during quarantine. It's been really fun to like wear some of my nicer things because. And what is your I, name? Oh, it's usually like a Svetlani kind of thing, you know. <laughs> Got it. Eastern European. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Yeah, this is good. I don't know. I like escaping in that world. And I'm not always as brave, I think, I don't know, as people would maybe assume, I guess, because I act for a living. But of course, like sexuality is its own different realm of vulnerability and exposure. So I think, I don't know, maybe 60 to 70% of the time, I like to feel slightly helpless. And like like I was suggesting, I don't necessarily want to link that to the guilt that I have being an American woman who's, you know, 43, raised with like slut was heard every day, all the time growing up as something you did not want to be. So I carry those things with me. But I love being at a place in my life where I can have a much I think a much healthier attitude towards sex. It feels great to feel really safe and I get to play. Poor Michael is sitting right over there. He's like, oh, I, don't, I know you're fine, right? <laughs> but Nicole, when you wrote in your email feeling embarrassed, I think that is totally normal. Dr. Patty, would you agree? Well, it's something new that you're expressing that you haven't before. And we live in a kind of society that teaches us to feel ashamed, right? I think shame is even more dramatic than embarrassment. Mm -hmm. Do you feel any of that, Nicole? I don't know. I guess it's hard because I, you know, suffer from anxiety and it's hard to really tell the difference sometimes. But I I try to work through it, you know, bit by bit in different ways. Yeah. Well, I think you're doing really well. And I think that the more you give yourself permission to explore this and to express this part of you, the more you're going to feel more confident as a woman. Mm-hmm. I know that actually. Mm-hmm. And it's going to it's going to leak over into other parts of your life because, you know, it's funny when we change our sexual patterns, which to me is the core of our self, those patterns are like circles in the stream. When you throw a rock into the stream or the river and it just has a ripple effect. Mm-hmm. Dr. Patty, what a great correlation to make between like having a healthy, happy, <laughs> exciting sex life. Yeah. Of course, that permeates through the rest of your life, maybe in ways that we can't even really recognize, I guess. Yeah. I love that idea. I love the idea that if I get spanked, then somehow I'll be more confident. That's what you're saying, right? <laughs> hey, I can take a spanking. I'll bet you can. Yeah. Right? It's that kind of attitude. <laughs> and I guess the other thing I want to say to you, Nicole, is that BDSM really has become mainstreamed thanks to Fifty Shades of Grey. And whether we like Fifty Shades of Grey, you know, as art or not, doesn't really matter. It changed the conversation. So there's a lot more acceptance. One of the top films on Netflix today, guess what, is about BDSM relationship. So, you know, you can feel part of a really large circle of people who are normal and just naturally expressing who they are. Mm -hmm. You get to do that. Thank you. I really appreciate the insight. And I really needed that stone tossed into my my river to create create those ripples. Yeah. (laughs) 
And Dr. Patty, don't you think that probably with most couples, I would think that Nicole's partner, I mean, in a healthy, happy relationship, he must be delighted. But I would think that if your partner is happy, if you can please your partner, that must be very gratifying, I would think. Yes. And he's always wanted to make sure when we do have sex that I have enjoyed myself and that I have either, you know, orgasmed or, you know, whatever. But he always makes sure that like I am like taken care of and that like always just makes me feel so appreciated and loved. Absolutely. He's a keeper. (laughs) (laughs) If this is like new territory for both of you, I think just having trust and uh, and close companionship, I am sure must be essential. Dr. Patty, what do you think? Okay. So let me break this down quickly. If you have, as you wrote about it, a fetish, we'll call it, which it isn't really a fetish. Fetish is usually about an object, you know, like a foot fetish or a latex fetish. But if you need, with big air quotes around it, a BDSM kind of relationship to ignite your sex drive, because you said you've had a low sex drive, you've had the best sex ever since telling him and experiencing this, then this is an important part of you. If you had a partner who couldn't go there, I don't know that you could sustain your sexual connection together. I really don't. Yeah. So you have something really important happening here. And it's opening you both up. The other thing is that men tend to get off from watching their partner be satisfied. And so there's something very classic about that. He sees you happy sexually. He sees you with that clit sucker going on with your arms above your head, with your mouth restrained, and you're loving it and your body is responsive and you're in it and it's happening and it's working. He gets off from that because he's a male (laughs) and because he cares about you. He's generous. He's a generous lover. And that's really what all lovers should be is generous with their partner. Mm -hmm. Dr. Patty, it sounds like Nicole has a wonderful partner, but I love the idea that if you do want to experiment or like dive into BDSM world, that it's done safely with communication. Mm Mm-hmm. So first of all, the basis of all relationships, and we know this today pretty strongly from the Me Too movement, has to be consent. So it's adults in consent. And one of the themes that I want to say out loud is that your body belongs to you. And if you get a feeling that this is not working for me, you have a right to stop whatever is going on. And it isn't for everyone. BDSM is not vanilla, as we used to call it. It's not a flavor that the majority likes. It's a specialty flavor of ice cream. And if that's the flavor you enjoy or you want to try it, great. But learn how to be safe. This is my main message, safety first. That means learning how these things work. You don't want to do harm to the body. You're playing with fire in some ways, literally, in BDSM. And so you need to be careful about things like restraining too tight around where blood might flow. You want to be careful about spanking on bone or where you can harm or injure somebody in a delicate, vulnerable part of their body. You always want to be careful about restraining the ability to breathe, breath play, 
there are things called edge play that are their danger zones. Now, here's the thing. When you're terrified, you're also excited. The physiology of both are the same. So people who play with these edges in BDSM are having excitement building, but they've contained it ahead of time. They've had a conversation about it. They've made boundaries around it. Like, it's okay if we do this, but not that. That's not okay. And there's always the right in the middle of a scene. That's what we call an act. In a scene to use your safe word, your stop word, your red light, or your yellow light. Like, uh uh-oh, this is, it's too tight. I lead trainings around the world, live trainings when the world is open, and teach people in sexology how to explore different parts of being a sexual person, including BDSM. I have experts come in. And sometimes we have experts in what's called shibari, rope play. It's a Japanese form of rope play on the body. It's a form of restraint. It's very beautiful. It's very quiet. It's very slow. But it can bind parts of the body to the point where circulation stops. The person who is the top, the dom, the person administering this has to know how to read the submissive, the person they're tying, so that everyone is safe. It's like a big picture frame, and safety is that picture frame. And whatever is okay within that picture frame between two consenting adults is fine. And it can be very, very, very extensive and intense, or it could be light and fluffy and playful. So safety first is really the big issue here. Mm-hmm. Does that answer it, Anna? Yes, I think so. What was that website you said? <laughs> You're getting me very interested in this. Vetlife.com. Yep, I'm writing, I'm just writing it down. That's all. <laughs> and it's global. There are millions okay. and millions okay. of people who it's the Facebook for kinksters, is what it's called lovingly. For kinky people. I like it. Yeah. So Nicole, one other idea I have for you is maybe lighten up on drinking if you're going to be playing with BDSM. Okay. If you went to a BDSM play space, like a club or they're called dungeons often wherever you live, and this is for everybody listening, there actually is no alcohol on the premises or it's not recommended that people who play actually drink at all or alter their consciousness with substance. Because you're going to go through a lot of changes in your own brain, your body is really going to give you the high. So you don't really need that. That's a de-inhibitor. And sometimes we need that when we're starting something new. So I think that was a good choice at the time. But I think you and your partner are on the road to something exquisite together. I like that, Dr. Patty, something exquisite. (laughs) I think that's wonderful. And Nicole, I can give you my list of characters that you can borrow anytime. (laughs) Thank you. Hey, Nicole, truly thank you for opening up to us and talking about something that is obviously very personal. And I know that we're going to get a lot of response. Yeah, thank you as well. I feel very heard and I feel supported. And thank you so much. (laughs) I want to say thank you for being so real and so courageous to share. Thank you. Thank you, sweetie. (laughs) Thanks, Nicole. Okay, thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Dr. Patty, thank you so much. Your advice is invaluable, and I just love talking with you. Thank you. It was my pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.
Hey, dear listeners, please check out our new website at unqualified.com and please send us your questions. 